Hello everyone. If you'd like to skip the next speech that's coming up here, feel free to skip ahead about 6 minutes and 30 seconds. But I highly recommend you listen to this whole thing because it's pretty amazing. And I want to thank our National Guard uh, because you are the best of us. You are the best of us. And whenever we call on you, you are there. And what you did in this facility in one week, creating a hospital, is just incredible. I don't know how you did it. Now, you did such a good job that I'm asking for four more from the president. That's the downside of being as, as good as you are at what you did. But what you did is really incredible. And I want to make two points to you. And I want to make two promises to you. This is a different beast that we're dealing with. This is an invisible beast. It is an insidious beast. This is not going to be a short deployment. This is not going to be that you go out there for a few days, we work hard, and we go home. This is going to be weeks and weeks and weeks. This is going to be a long day. And it's going to be a hard day. And it's going to be an ugly day. And it's going to be a sad day. This is a rescue mission that you're on. The mission is to save lives. That's what you're doing. The rescue mission is to save lives. And as hard as we work, we're not going to be able to save everyone. And what's even more cruel is this enemy doesn't attack the strongest of us. It attacks the weakest of us. It attacks our most vulnerable, which makes it even worse in many ways. Because these are the people that every instinct tells us we're supposed to protect. These are our parents and our grandparents. These are our aunts, our uncles. These are a relative who is sick. And every instinct says, protect them, help them, because they need us. And those are the exact people that this enemy attacks. Every time I've called out the National Guard, I've said the same thing to you. I promise you, I will not ask you to do anything that I will not do myself, and I'll never ask you to go anywhere that I won't go myself. And the same is true here. We're going to do this, and we're going to do this together. My second point is, you are living a moment in history. This is going to be one of those moments they're going to write about and they're going to talk about for generations. This is a moment that is going to change this nation. This is a, na a moment that forges character, forges people, changes people, make them stronger, make them weaker. But this is a moment that will change character. And 10 years from now, 
you'll be talking about today to your children or your grandchildren and you will shed a tear because you will remember the lives lost and you'll remember the faces and you'll remember the names and you'll remember how hard we worked and that we still lost loved ones. And you'll shed a tear, and you should, because it will be sad. But you will also be proud. You'll be proud of what you did. You'll be proud that you showed up. You showed up when other people played it safe, you had the courage to show up and you had the skill and the professionalism to make a difference and save lives. That's what you will have done. And at the end of the day, nobody can ask anything more from you. That is your duty to do what you can when you can and you will have shown skill and courage and talent. You'll be there with your mind, you'll be there with your heart, and you'll serve with honor. And that will give you pride, and you should be proud. I know that I am proud of you. And every time the National Guard has been called out, they have made every New Yorker proud. And I am proud to be with you yet again. And I'm proud to fight this fight with you. And I bring you thanks from all New Yorkers who are just so appreciative of the sacrifice that you are making, the skill that you're bringing, the talent that you're bringing, and you give many New Yorkers confidence. So I say, my friends, that we go out there today and we kick coronavirus ass. That's what I say. And we're going to save lives. And New York is going to thank you. God bless each and every one of you. Hello, everyone. This is Paul Aronowitz, health sciences clinical professor at UC Davis School of Medicine reaching out to our students and students across the country who need some distance learning at this challenging time in American history. And that speech that you just heard was delivered uh, at um, the Armory in New York by uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo. And uh, I think that probably the best speech that's come out of the entire COVID-19 crisis pretty amazing. Uh, hopefully you uh, were able to listen to the whole thing. So without further ado, let's dive into some questions. We are still working our way through the infectious disease medicine portion of internal medicine essentials for students. So we're going to start with item number 32. And this is a 24-year-old man who's evaluated because of a three-day history of painful penile lesions accompanied by dysuria, generalized myalgia, malaise, and fever. The patient is sexually active. 
On physical examination, temperature is 37.8 degrees centigrade or 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and the remaining vital signs are normal. Examination of the genital area shows painful vesicular lesions on an erythematous base. Which of the following is the most appropriate treatment? A. Acyclovir. B. Benzathine penicillin G. C. Ceftriaxone and azithromycin. Or D. Fluconazole. Again, choices are which of the following is the most appropriate treatment. And again, you kind of need to, to uh, be thinking about what the diagnosis is here in this sexually active man who has myalgia, malaise, low-grade fever, and uh, lesions uh, which are vesicular on an erythematous base in his genital area. So choice A is acyclovir, B, benzathine, penicillin, G, C, ceftriaxone, and azithromycin, or D, fluconazole. So the answer to this one is A, um, and the most appropriate treatment is acyclovir. The patient's findings on clinical examination are consistent with herpes simplex virus, or HSV for short, infection. Because he has several lesions accompanied by systemic symptoms, which include malaise and fever, he most likely has a primary infection, which is important in this situation to decide how long you're going to treat him for. Both HSV-1 and HSV-2 can cause primary genital infection, and the incidence of primary infection from HSV-1 has increased in recent years. HSV-1 genital infections are less likely to be associated with recurrences and subclinical viral shedding. Although the clinical presentation is consistent with HSV infection, the diagnosis should be concern, uh, sorry, confirmed by viral culture or PCR testing. Direct fluorescence antibody testing is much less sensitive diagnostic modality. So pending the results of diagnostic testing, the patient should begin antiviral therapy to reduce the severity and duration of symptoms. Acyclovir, valacyclovir, and famcyclovir are appropriate agents for the treatment of HSV infection. In primary infection, treatment is ideally started within 72 hours of onset and continued for 7 to 10 days. In recurrent HSV outbreaks, antiviral therapy is ideally started within 24 hours of onset and continued for 5 days. Although antiviral therapy does not eradicate the infection, it has been shown to decrease the duration of symptoms and lesions. I should add that um, most of these antiviral treatments are relatively cheap um, depending on which one you're using. So uh, which uh, comments about the wrong answers here? Benzathine penicillin G is the appropriate treatment choice for primary syphilis. Syphilis is characterized by chancres, which are usually single, painless lesions with a clean base uh, unless they get secondarily infected. However, multiple lesions can also occur. So this, you know, these vesicular lesions are not consistent with syphilis. Uh, the other choice, ceftriaxone plus azithromycin, azithromycin I can't talk today, <laughs> ceftriaxone plus azithromycin would be appropriate for treatment of a sexually transmitted infection with Neisseria gonorrhea and chlamydia trach trachomatis. 
By the way, all day yesterday I was saying trachomatis, and I meant to say trachomatis. I'm pronouncing it wrong in that uh, last recording. However, neither of these infections typically presents with the clinical findings seen in this patient. Fluconazole as an antifungal uh, would be appropriate for candidal infection. However, vesicular lesions are not a common presentation of cutaneous infection with candida, and therefore this is uh, not the appropriate treatment, namely the fluconazole. All right, hopefully you got that one right. That's a pretty basic question, <clears throat> and that one is your fair game to show up on any of your future standardized test questions and be seen in real life for sure. Today on the wards, uh, I saw a patient who's on um, sort of immunosuppressed as he's being treated for multiple myeloma, and he has multiple vesicular lesions on his tongue and in his mouth, on his mucous membranes and his lips. So we are sending off an HSV PCR study on him to rule in uh, what I think is probably going to be HSV, most likely HSV1 if it's in the mouth, but HSV2 can also occur there. All right. Item 33, a 26-year-old man is evaluated because of a painless penile lesion that he first noted three days ago. He has no fever or other symptoms. He has had three male sexual partners in the last six months and uses condoms inconsistently. He undergoes HIV testing every year and his most recent results seven months ago were negative. On physical examination, vital signs are normal. Skin findings on the shaft of the penis are shown in plate 19, which you can't see because this is a recording. So I'm going to telepathically send you the image of plate 19, and what we're seeing is a clean-based ulcer, which is just proximal to the glands of the penis on the shaft. And it's uh, there's no purulence, it's erythematous base, but clean-based. There's no evidence of penile discharge or other genital lesions. He has no other skin or oral lesions. Shoddy, non-tender inguinal lymphadenopathy is noted. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A. Chancroid. B. Herpes simplex virus infection. C. Human papillomavirus infection. Or D. Syphilis. Let me give you those choices again. A. Chancroid. B herpes simplex virus infection, C, human papillomavirus infection, or D, syphilis. And wouldn't you just love to know whether um, this, oh, actually they did say in the first sentence, because of a painless penile lesion. So he's got this painless, clean-based ulcer and the shaft of his penis. So throw me your answers and don't drop them in the water. All right. So the answer to this one is actually D, syphilis. So um, this is, of course, primary syphilis. Um, and this patient's clinical presentation and examination are most consistent with a syphilitic chancre. Chancres are most frequently single lesions, but multiple lesions can occur. These lesions are generally painless. I have heard that I've never seen one that's painful, but I've heard that they can actually be quite painful. So the generally painless is important to keep in mind. The border of the ulcer is raised and has a firm cartilaginous consistency. The incidence of primary and secondary syphilis in the United States has increased among certain populations, especially young men who have sex with men and patients with HIV infection. Because the method needed to demonstrate 
Trypanema pallidum organisms in clinical specimens is not available in most settings, the clinical diagnosis can be confirmed by serologic testing. However, findings on serum rapid plasma reagent, or RPR titer, are frequently negative in primary syphilis. This patient should be offered HIV testing, screening for gonorrhea and chlamydia infection, and counseling on risk reduction. In addition to syphilis, the differential diagnosis of genital ulcer disease includes chancroid and herpes simplex virus infection. But you know, as we talked about, HSV is usually gonna have vesicular lesions, and that's not what this one was. Bacterial secondary infection of traumatic genital lesions can also have the appearance of an ulcer. So the wrong answers uh, regarding those, chancroid causes single or multiple painful ulcers with a ragged border. The base of the ulcer has a granulomatous appearance frequently with a purulent exudate. Ew. This patient does not have symptoms of chancroid. Herpes simplex virus infection generally presents with multiple painful ulcers that uh, are usually initially vesicular on an erythematous base. Again, he didn't have that. And finally, human papillomavirus infection causes genital warts, not ulcerative lesions. So key point here, syphilitic chancres are most frequently single, painless lesions with a raised border and a firm cartilaginous consistency. Multiple lesions can also occur. And if you got that one wrong, you can blame me because I couldn't actually tell whether the borders were a cartilaginous consistency because even though I could see the plate 19 and you couldn't, I couldn't feel the cartilaginous border. So there you go. All right, moving on here, we're gonna next do uh, question number 34. And this is a 27-year-old man who's evaluated in the clinic six months after initiation of antiretroviral therapy for newly diagnosed HIV infection. He is asymptomatic. At the time of diagnosis, his HIV RNA, so-called viral load, was 500,000 copies per ml, and CD4 cell count was 298 per microliter. Medications are emtricitabine, tenofovir, and efavirenz, and omeprazole, which he takes on occasion for heartburn. On physical examination, temperature is 37 degrees centigrade, 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. The remainder of the vital signs and physical examination are normal. Today's laboratory results show a viral load of 200,000 copies per ml and a C4 cell count of 225 per microliter. And I will remind you that he was 298 per microliter on his previous visit six months ago, and he had a um, viral load of 500,000 at that time. So now he's down to 200,000 with a CD4 cell count, which has fallen from 298 down to 225. Which of the following is the most appropriate management? A, add a protease inhibitor. B, add trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. C, monitor and repeat viral load testing and CD4 cell count in six months. D, obtain viral resistance testing. Okay, so put your quarter down, or your nickel if you're feeling like kind of broke right now. And the answer to that one is D. You wanna obtain viral, viral resistance testing. Sorry, it's been a long week on the wards, um, so I'm a little uh, frazzled in my speaking 
um, abilities here. The most appropriate management for this patient is to obtain a viral, viral God, I can't talk, viral resistance test, genotype and phenotype, and to consult an infectious disease specialist. Suppression of HIV viral load to less than 50 copies per ml should occur by 24 weeks of effective therapy. Virologic failure is suspected when suppression of viral replication to less than 200 copies per ml cannot be achieved or maintained. Potential causes for virologic failure include poor adherence to the regimen, medication intolerance, pharmacologic, or I should say pharmacokinetic issues such as individual variation in drug metabolism, and suspected drug resistance. Resistance testing should be performed while the patient is taking the unsuccessful regimen within four weeks or within four weeks of discontinuation. Distinguishing among the reasons for virologic failure can be challenging and assistance from an infectious disease specialist, oh yeah, you know I'm calling ID in that situation, is warranted. Unless whoever's listening to this is an infectious disease doctor and then you would just call yourself and you'd probably know exactly what to do. So uh, why are the other answers incorrect? So although protease inhibitors, because one of the choices was to start a protease inhibitor, are one of the preferred classes of drugs for HIV treatment, changes in the antiviral uh, retroviral regimen should be made after evaluation for factors leading to failure, including viral resistance. In this patient, drug interactions must also be considered because proton pump inhibitors, such as omeprazole, can have a significant effect on the concentration of protease inhibitors. So, um, what about the second choice, um, which was um, add trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. So trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole is used for pneumocystis, urovecchi, as well as actually toxoplasmosis prophylaxis. So when the CD4 count is less than 200 uh, per microliter, um, which it wasn't, it was still only 225, so they slipped you a fast one there. And then how about um, monitor and repeat viral load testing and CD4 cell count in six months? Um, uh, it can be performed every three to six months in clinically stable patients with suppressed viral load, um, but the poor response shown by this patient's viral load should trigger prompt evaluation. You don't want to sit on that because he's going to end up potentially ending up with an opportunistic infection that could be life-threatening. So the key point in this question is that in patients who do not achieve viral suppression, evaluating for factors that lead to failure should be undertaken, including viral resistance testing and assistance from an infectious disease specialist. And we have a lot of good ones here at UC Davis, so you should send all of your patients here to UC Davis. No, I'm not endorsing uh, my own institution. I have no bias whatsoever. All right, we're gonna jump over question 35. Um, if you have the book, you can do that one. It's not a bad question, but um, I sort of had um, mixed feelings about it to, to spend time during these important focus sessions that we're doing here. So item 36, a 33-year-old woman is seen for routine evaluation. She and her husband are thinking about starting a family and she asks whether she should be screened for HIV. She has had several sexual partners, but always within mono 
So if you know the recommendations, I'm going to just pause here a second. If you know the recommendations for screening for HIV, you don't need to need, read this question any further than that end of that sentence. However, let me give you some more information. She has had several sexual partners, but always within monogamous relationships and always using condoms. None of her partners had known HIV infection, used injection drugs, or had sex with men. She has no history of sexually transmitted infections, has never been pregnant, and is sexually active only with her husband of eight years. Her husband is healthy, but has never been tested for HIV infection. She uh, takes no medications. Findings on physical examination are normal. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in the management of this patient? A, HIV antibody and P24 antigen test. B, HIV western blot assay. C, HIV nucleic acid amplification test. Or D, no testing indicated. I'll throw those at you again. A, HIV antibody and P24 antigen test. B, HIV western blot assay. C, HIV nucleic acid amplification test. And D, no testing indicated. So use your common sense with this one. And I s I'm positive you'll get it right. So the answer here is A, uh, which is that you'd get the uh, HIV antibody and P24 antigen test. So the first step in the management of this patient is uh, screening with the HIV antibody P24 antigen. Although the patient has no symptoms or significant risk factors for HIV infection, and this is why I said you didn't need to read the rest of the question, the Centers for the Disease Control and Prevention recommends that all persons between 13 and 64 years of age undergo HIV screening at least once, and that those with risk factors undergo annual testing. So remember those things. For the general population, at least once, and then annual screening for those with risk factors. In addition, the American College of Physicians has issued a guidance statement recommending that this age range be expanded to include patients through 75 years of age because of increased rates of infection in this population. Recommended screening testing is with a combination immunoassay that detects both HIV antibody and P24 antigen, a viral capsid protein that is elevated early in infection. This combination testing reduces the window period when false negative results may occur, <clears throat> excuse me, and may diagnose HIV as early as two weeks after infection occurs. So what about that Western blot assay? So Western blot testing had previously been used as a more specific confirmatory test for HIV if an initial highly sensitive enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay or ELISA for antibodies directed towards HIV or a rapid HIV test was positive. However, Western blot testing is no longer recommended due to the improved sensitivity and specificity of the combined HIV antibody P24 antigen assay as an initial test and removal of the need for sequential testing to document HIV infection. So way back in the day, well, which wasn't that long ago actually, we used to get that uh, HIV ELISA, and then if it was positive, they would do a Western blot assay to confirm the positivity, because the last thing you wanted to do was to tell a patient they were HIV positive when they really weren't. 
The nucleic acid amplification test is not used for screening for HIV infection in asymptomatic low-risk patients. It may be helpful in diagnosis of patients who may be in the window period following acute HIV infection before seroconversion occurs, which may lead to false negative antibody testing. However, the currently recommended initial combination of HIV antibody P24 antigen test reduces the window period to as little as two weeks, as I said above. And um, finally, regarding the do-nothing approach, which sometimes the do-nothing approach is correct in these questions, but not here. Because this patient has never had HIV screening and is eligible, initiating no testing would not be the most appropriate management. I don't know, how do you initiate no testing? Because you're not doing anything, so you're not really initiating anything. It would be more like you're just not testing. So doing nothing was not acceptable as a choice. Key point, all persons between 13 and 75 years of age should be tested for HIV infection at least once, and those with risk factors should undergo annual testing. This is like a really good thing to know, whether you're going into peds, internal medicine, family medicine, emergency medicine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, we're gonna move on here. I think this is, this is gonna be our last, are we already at our last question of the day? I guess we are. Hmm, that's quite striking. I thought that we had, did we just do, we didn't just do five, did we? One, two, three, four. Oh no, we have one more to do here. So, all right, you ready for this? A 20, this is item 37, and this is a 23-year-old woman is evaluated in the emergency department. Boy, time flies when you're having fun, I tell you. A 23-year-old woman is evaluated in the, just focus here. A 23-year-old woman, I'm talking to myself again. Uh, a 23-year-old woman is evaluated in the emergency department because of a 10-day history of fever, cervical lymphadenopathy, malaise and fatigue, sore throat, headache, and nausea. She reports no vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, nasal congestion, or cough. She had a rash a few days ago, and that has resolved. She is sexually active with multiple male partners and does not use condoms. On physical examination, tempers, temperature is 38.1 degrees centigrade, or for you Fahrenheiters out there, 100.6. Blood pressure is 110 over 88 millimeters of mercury. Pulse rate is 96 per minute, and respiratory rate is 16 per minute. Significant lymphadenopathy is noted in the cervical, axillary, and inguinal regions. The oropharynx is erythematous with mildly enlarged tonsils, but no exudate. There is no skin rash. The remainder of the physical examination is unremarkable. Results of heterophile antibody tests, rapid strep antigen test, HIV antibody P24 antigen test, pregnancy test, and rapid plasma reagent test for syphilis are all negativo. Which of the following is the most appropriate diagnostic test to perform next? So this is uh, considered sort of an advanced question, but a very, very important one. This is like a great thing to be able to recognize on a test or in a patient that you're seeing. Now, if you go back to the, to the beginning of the question and then sort of create an, um, a problem representation, it, this is a young, otherwise healthy, 
sexually active woman who presents with what sounds like mononucleosis-like syndrome, right? Lymphadenopathy, fever, malaise, sore throat, headache, etc. She's got a low-grade fever as well, and she's got the lymphadenopathy on exam. So that's more than enough, probably, information for you. So which of the following is the most appropriate diagnostic test to perform next? A, CD4 cell count. B, HIV nucleic acid amplification test. C, HIV western blot assay. Or D, repeat HIV antibody P24 antigen test. Well, if you were listening to the answer I gave you on the last question, this one you're gonna get right or you may already know the answer to it. Again, answers A, CD4 cell count, B, HIV nucleic acid amplication test, C, HIV western blot assay, or D, repeat, HIV antibody P24 antigen test. All right, so the answer here is B, and B is the HIV nucleic acid amplification test. The most appropriate next test is an HIV nucleic acid amplification test. The patient's medical history and timing of symptoms are typical of acute HIV infection. So I cannot stress the importance of this question more uh, because this is something we see uh, and it's, we see it regularly in medicine and it's an important thing to recognize um, not only for these multiple choice exams but also in real life. So although her symptoms could also represent infectious mononucleosis or syphilis, preliminary results of those conditions are negative. Remember, everything was negative. In most cases, when HIV infection develops, an acute symptomatic illness occurs within two to four weeks of infection. Symptoms typically last for a few weeks and range from a simple febrile illness to a full-blown mononucleosis-like syndrome. Because patients have no immune response during this period, virus levels tend to be very high, resulting in high levels of infectivity. Symptoms of acute HIV infection resolve with or without treatment, and most acute infections are undiagnosed, which is why I want you to be able to diagnose this. Patients who present with symptomatic acute HIV infection, which is also known as acute retroviral syndrome, are usually in the window period, and which may extend for three to six weeks. During this time, seroconversion of the disease has not yet occurred and results of HIV antibody testing, as in this case, are negative. The currently recommended newer generation HIV assays combine HIV antibody testing with detection of the HIV P24 antigen, which may shorten the length of the window period to as little as two weeks, but see, she was in that two-week period. Although this assay was negative in this patient with a high suspicion for acute HIV infection, so repeating the test would not be expected to be definitive in this patient with a previously negative result. However, results of viral-specific tests, such as those for nucleic acid, are usually positive at quite high levels during this time frame and can be used to definitively establish the diagnosis. So why not measure the CD4 cell count? 
Uh, it's neither sensitive nor specific in, for HIV infection and should be performed only after the diagnosis of HIV is already established. CD4 cell count can actually be normal in a patient with HIV infection. Conversely, it can be depressed as a result of many other conditions that can present similarly to acute HIV infection. For example, pneumococcal pneumonia can cause the CD4 count to fall. During uh, the window period of acute HIV infection, results of antibody testing are unreliable. Therefore, antibody-based testing, such as Western blot, would not be useful. So what are the key points in this question? Most patients with acute HIV infection have nonspecific symptoms that range from a simple febrile illness to a mononucleosis-like syndrome within two to four weeks of infection. And remember, when that's occurring in the two to four week range, you're right in that window period where you may get a negative HIV test. So you gotta think beyond that if you're convinced it's probably gonna be HIV infection. So thank you for tuning in today. I'll be back sometime the next 24 to 1,000 hours to give you some more questions. We're really chopping away at this infectious disease section of the I Am Essentials. Have a great day. Stay sane and stay safe.